The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, May 13th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Well, good morning and, and happy Mother's Day to all of you again. I, I know uh, we can't appreciate our moms enough. If you wouldn't mind, give another round of applause for our moms in the room. I, Some of us have jobs that, that are very tough, um, but there's actually a, a weekend. There's an end to the week where you, you, know, you get a break and then you start back over on Monday. Uh, moms, there's no end to the week for moms, and I've gotten to watch this now for years. It's like 20 years of one very long week, uh, right? So that, that we, we ought always to honor our moms. God put that in the Ten Commandments. It's so important. Honor your mother and father that it might be that might go well with you, all right? So it's always right to honor our moms every single day. And I, I think it's a really good thing to do it in a very special way, at least once a year like this. So again, happy Mother's Day to all of you. And do me a favor if you would, everybody, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we're gonna read verses 17 through 28 this morning and then just see what the Lord wants to say to us from there. If you've been with us, then you know we, we've started a series now the past few weeks and we're calling it Sent, the Mission of Jesus. Now, I repeat myself every week when I do this. Some of you, I, I had a Bible teacher once who said that good teaching is repeating until learning takes place. Good teaching is repeating until learning takes place because we don't learn things very quickly, right? We, we learn with difficulty and we forget easily. So good, teach, good teaching is repeating until learning takes place. So I'm gonna repeat myself at the risk of what might come at me on your faces. I'm gonna repeat myself anyway. We are doing this series called Sent, the Mission of Jesus. And we, we said as Christians, we don't simply go anywhere anymore. We're sent by Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 21 says that as the Father sent me, speaking there is Jesus, as the Father sent me, even so, I'm sending you. So we don't simply go anywhere as Christians anymore. We are sent by Jesus, and at every moment, the purpose for which he sends us into the world is connected to the purpose for which he himself came into the world. And so we're looking at statements in this series that Jesus himself made, statements he made about why he came into the world, and we're hoping that through those statements, God will inform us about our own reason for being here, and, and more than just informing us, that he'll begin to transform our hearts as we seek to live in a way that honors Jesus together. So let me pray, and then We'll get started here in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Father, thank you again for gathering in us. Help us to truly listen to your word this morning and let your word have its intended effect on our hearts. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples, he took them aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? 
And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. And clearly, by the way this takes place, he's no longer simply talking to mom. Jesus picks up on the fact here that there may be some characters who put their mom up to asking this question. And so he says, you don't know what you're asking. Verse 22, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, James and John, they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard about it, now the other 10, when they heard this, they were indignant at the two brothers. Probably because they wanted to do the same thing and, and James and John just beat them to it. But verse 25, seeing all of this happening amongst his followers, Jesus called them together. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. You hear that, Christians? You hear that this morning? This is what Jesus is after. There are certain things that are typical out there in the rest of the world. Wherever authority and power are found, there are certain things that are typical. And Jesus says in verse 26, as for my kingdom... As for the church, it should not be so among you. He continues, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came. Now here it is. Here's why Jesus came this morning. He's going to highlight these two things for us. Why did the Son of Man come? Why did Jesus come? He tells us in verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What we want to do this morning is we want to look at each one of those things. The fact that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and the fact that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And we want to try to understand what that should mean for our lives today as his followers. So Lord, help us with that as we go forward. Uh, help us not to turn a, a deaf ear to what you're saying here. Protect us from distraction. We ask this again in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know how it works. Jesus says here in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You guys understand how this works in various countries or kingdoms throughout the world, even today. There typically is a ruling class. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. This ruling class of people call all the shots. They structure things in such a way that it always advantages them and the rest of us are constantly reminded about the fact that we're not quite as special and not quite as important. We've, we've tried, I think, I think when this country was set up, we tried really hard in this country not to let that be the case here. But you can only see so many Bushes and Clintons and Kennedys before you, you just have to admit what's going on. There is a ruling class of people who tend to lord it over everyone else. 
And in, in terms of who the great ones in these societies are, it's the people who hold this authority over others and can compel them to do what they want done. They exercise, Jesus says, authority over them. But it should not be this way in the church. There should not be a permanent ruling class in the church. I always get concerned when churches pass down from father to son like a family business. Does anybody else get concerned? It, it shouldn't, there should not be a permanent ruling class in the church. Now, I have seen cases where that son was the right person for that job. I've been privileged to see that in at least one case that I'm very familiar with. His calling was without question. I've also seen some cases though where I'm like, that's more like a family business, right? Jesus said, no, it should not be this way in the church. And he shows up and says, listen, I am to be your example. Not the way they do things out here, but think about the son of man. Jesus says, I came not to be served, but rather everybody to serve. And then he goes on to say, he talks about giving his life. Now, when Jesus says, I come primarily not to be served, but to serve, he means that to be an example and model for us. It is possible though, even for genuine and sincere Christians like us, it is possible for us, wherever we show up and find ourselves around other people, it is possible for us to show up primarily to be served by the people we find there. Look no further than right now. People say, it's almost, it's almost like people laugh about this now, but they say you take any church, including Redemption Hill, and they say the 80-20 principle is at work. You probably know what I'm talking about. 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. We show up, even as Christians, primarily to be served by everybody else. And Jesus says it shouldn't be that way because that's not how I show up. He says, I show up not primarily to be served, but rather everyone to serve. And so as Christians, it's very important that all of us adopt that as a model and a pattern for ourselves. We come here and anywhere else Jesus sends us primarily to serve rather than to be served by all the other people that we find there. You know, in this church, and, and we're fortunate, this is a very giving and very serving church, but certainly if you were to ask us, do we have room to grow in this area, we would say yes. We certainly have room to grow. I don't want us to lose, though, the fact that there is a great deal of giving and serving done by this people we call Redemption Hill. But yes, we, we certainly have room to grow, and, and some of us in particular, and you, you probably would know who you are. Uh, you, you probably have a lot of room to grow in this area. You, maybe you're going through a stretch where you've even said to yourself, I just, I don't want to serve. I just want to come and I want to be poured into and I want to receive. And uh, I, I've, I've seen situations where I would say, I think that's okay for a little bit. I don't know where you are on, on that, on that spectrum. But at some point, I think it does cross a line where, where we begin to primarily look at everyone else around us and we settle in that place of just allowing everyone to serve us, and we never lift a finger to serve the others we find around ourselves. It should be different for Christians. 
It should be. Does everybody understand that and see that? Jesus is saying that just like him, we should come primarily to serve, not simply to be served by everyone around us. And as for who the great ones are in this church, typically, I think the people we hear about are the ones who are on the stage, whether that's Robert or myself or some of our musicians and the people who lead us in various aspects of the service. But one of the things Jesus is trying to say here in the text is that when you want to find the great ones in my kingdom, you've got to look beyond the stage. James and John, you are asking me for the two most prominent positions in my kingdom. You're basically saying, Jesus, when people see and think about you, we want them to see and think about us. There we are, right at your right and your left. And these guys think that this is going to gain them notoriety, perhaps respect and admiration. And Jesus says, no, if anything, this is going to gain you a cup. You will have to drink a cup of suffering the way that I will. You will end up suffering greatly if you are associated with me. And as far as the great ones, James and John, it's not the people that everyone always thinks about or they see right away. It's the people behind the curtains. It's the people back in those rooms. It, I, I named a few of them here in the first service. Um, forgive me as I, as I call some of your names out because I know you don't want to. Again, you're, you're very humble. This is why you are the way you are. But, but, but let, me, let me borrow your names for just a moment uh, so that God can make a point that I think will encourage some of us. Many of you don't know Matt Burkhart. You, you probably don't know who he is. You couldn't pick him out in, in, in a crowd here. All he's done is set this thing up for all of us every week for almost 10 years and break it back down afterward. I promise you, based on what I'm saying right now, if you didn't know him before this morning, then if you just stand for a few minutes and observe what's going on, you would be able to pick him out right away. Jesus looks and says, there's greatness. I don't have time to talk about all the middle school community leaders, all 10 of you that serve every single week with our fifth through eighth graders, how you, you sacrifice that time to pour into their lives, but, but Jesus sees greatness there. He sees greatness. Uh, Timberly Cox, Lacey Frazier, I mean, the, these, these young ladies, they, they serve every single week in Redemption Hill Kids, and that's why they're in this 11 o'clock service, right? They, they serve back there every week to bring the gospel to our kids in a way that they can understand so that their hearts can be brought to Christ and then they sit here so that they themselves can sit under the teaching of God's word and hear that. And they do that every single week. I mean, we're grateful for the people who do that once a month. They do it every week. And they've been doing that for years. Time would fail me to talk about even, even guys like Jude Green back there. Just seventh grade, but he does his slides every week. Julia Eberly, who comes here and, and does meet Redemption Hill once a month faithfully. Right? We've already mentioned our mothers. You don't see them here on Sunday perhaps doing all this, but, but man, every single time in those little gatherings we call our homes, these mothers every single day from sunup to sundown, and I, man, I wish I could say it's limited to sunup and sun, sun to sundown, but it's more than that, especially if you have infants. It's, it's 24-7, right? So we have those among us who are really being poured out in sacrifice consistently, continually, uh, and, and I believe from heaven's perspective are, are seen as the truly great ones. We're honored to be a part of your church. <laughs> We're honored to be associated not only with the Lord Jesus, but to be associated with people like you. And it is our privilege, even from this stage, to serve you in the many ways that God has called us 
to serve. Lord, I, I do. I'm, I'm really grateful. We are really grateful for all of the people we mentioned and so many more. We pray that you would let them be another reflection of your character to us, your, your, your heart, so that we would also be moved to show up, not simply to be served, but to serve. And then also, Lord, help us as we move on to our next point. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus came not simply to give us that model of what it looks like to use power correctly and to serve others rather than to simply look to be served. But he also says, look at verse 28 again. He also says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, every single phrase or word in that verse is important. Jesus says he came to give his life, which means nobody took it from him. Jesus really wants us to understand this. No one takes his life from him. In fact, in John chapter 10, flip over there. In John, don't lose your place in Matthew, but in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus goes out of the way through the apostle John to tell us that this is indeed the case. He says there in verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I'm going to preach to you. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. There was never a moment in his life or ministry where Jesus was an unfortunate victim of other people. Amen. Preach to you too. <laughs> never a moment in Jesus' life or ministry where he was an unfortunate victim of other people and their power. In fact, he had to correct Pilate. You remember this in John chapter 18? Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life, exhausted, bloodied, could barely gasp, could barely gather enough air to call it a breath. And, and, and Pilate made the mistake of looking at him and saying, man, why won't you talk to me? Don't you understand who I am? Don't you understand I have the power to crucify and condemn you or to set you free? Why won't you answer me when I talk to you? Whew. Jesus said, hold up. Let's get one thing straight right now. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You think I'm on trial, Mr. Pilate? You're on trial. You stand before a king, the likes of which your mind cannot even fathom. Don't make me break my silence again. Let's just get on with this thing so I can set my people free. Because he came not only to give his life, but to do it as a ransom. That word ransom is carefully chosen. Whether you heard it in Aramaic, whether you heard it in Greek, whether you read it in Greek in the New Testament, look, that word means a payment that is designed to secure the freedom of someone else. A ransom is a payment that secures the freedom of someone else. Jesus offered his life, freely gave his life as a payment to carry out a transaction that set people like us free. 
And that is supposed to change everything about how we see ourselves and how we live. The year was 1939. World War II was, was just breaking in. And there was a, a Franciscan monk in Poland, a Polish Franciscan monk by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. He was 45 years old at the time. The Nazis came in and they, you've read about the Blitzkrieg in, in history as you've studied world history. They made quick work of the Polish resistance. They took over and they subjected everyone to their tyranny. Well, Maximilian Kolbe and some other monks decided they were going to shelter a number of people, over 2,000 Jews and some others as well, and they were taking care of them. They knew at great risk and cost to their own life, and after about a year, word got back to the Nazi authorities, and Maximilian Kolbe was placed on their list of people to be arrested and uh, to be sent to a concentration camp. So every concentration camp was horrible, but Maximilian Kolbe was sent to Auschwitz, which had a reputation of being the absolute worst place anyone could be sent. So he went, and one night when there was typically silence, all of a sudden there were alarms and shouts coming from the Nazi soldiers. Their shouts broke the silence, and soon everybody understood what was going on. One of their prisoners was on the loose. And that prisoner actually escaped. The prisoner was in barracks 14, the very same division of the camp that Father Maximilian Kolbe was in. And when the prisoner could not be caught, it was determined that 10 of the other prisoners would die for him in his place in the starvation chamber, which apparently, for those telling the story, they say, we would take anything but the starvation chamber. Give me a bullet, give me a gas chamber, give me anything, but not, not by starvation. But this is what the Nazi soldiers determined would happen to 10 of the prisoners in barracks number 14. So they lined them all up, and they began to choose one, two, three, four. By the time they came to the, to the last one, number 10, this man who thought that he might narrowly escape this terrible fate began to weep immediately. And he said, my, my, my wife, my kids, what, what are they going to do? And then all of a sudden, like an 11th condemned to die, one who was not chosen to die, Father Maximilian Kolbe came up to the commandant, the one in charge of this whole proceeding. His name was Fritz, Commandant Fritz. And he goes up to him and he says, I would like to die in place of one of the 10 you have selected. And the commandant thought about it for a minute and then he allowed it and said, okay, which one would you like to, to die for? And he said that last one there who was crying. He said, I'm a monk, I don't have a wife or children. I wanna take his place. And they allowed him to do so. So he went to the starvation chamber and one by one, the men began to succumb to suffocation and to starvation. The man who was released because of the sacrifice of Father Colby, his name was Gajaunacek, he would frequently find himself near the starvation chamber, near the pit. He would sometimes look and he would see Colby down there in his place and his heart was, was moved like you could only imagine. 
but often he would stand back so that he wouldn't be able to see because it was too much for him. But he would hear the sounds and he would realize that he was only free because someone had taken his place. His life would never be the same. And one day, far from the usual sounds of torment, there was a different sound arising from the starvation pit. They heard singing. All of a sudden, there was singing coming from this pit. Father Maximilian Kolbe, one by one, had been leading these men to Jesus Christ. And their hearts had come alive, and they realized that even in the midst of starving and being tortured like this, we belong to a man who was tortured even more than this for us. We will share in his suffering, but there will be great joy and glory on the other end of it. And they began to sing of their Redeemer and their Savior who took all of their places. Right there in the pit, they began to sing. And I couldn't confirm this. I tried and I searched and I tried to confirm this because, oh, what a great story it would have been. But rumor has it, so I'm going to go with it anyway. Rumor has it that Commandant Fritz repented and turned to the Lord. Fritz looked at what Maximilian Kolbe did for another man. And his heart was completely turned around. How much should it change us when we look at Jesus and realize that what he did, he did for us? The, the overwhelming sense of gratitude that Gajownicek felt every day should be ours. Jesus did not simply die for us in the way that we tend to think about it. He did a good thing for us. He died instead of us. He died in our place. He took, that place on the cross was, was a place reserved for judgment against sin. Jesus took judgment that belonged to us. He came forward and he said, God, Heavenly Father, I want to die in his place. Okay? And he offered his life as a ransom. He set us free by what he did at the cross. And we know that we needed him to set us free because the Bible teaches us that at one point before Christ, we were all slaves to sin. Look at, look at the Gospel of John. Open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 34. See, culturally, some of us identify with people who have been enslaved, and others of us have a harder time identifying with people who have been enslaved. But spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, Jesus says that all of us should understand what it is to find ourselves in bondage or in slavery. In John chapter 8, verse 34, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a, everybody? Slave to sin. Now, raise your hands with me real, real quick. Who in here commits sin? That's a lot of people. Apart from Christ, before Christ, and the transaction that we are describing where he puts his life forward as a ransom 
for you and for me, before Christ, we are slaves to sin. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. Turn there. Romans chapter 6. Just keep going to the right a little bit, Acts, and then the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, then you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So you're still a slave, congratulations, but now in Christ you are a slave of righteousness. You are a slave, as the text will go on to say in Romans 6, you're a slave of God. You are, as Paul would identify himself often, a slave or servant of Christ. And therein is your true spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom is found in being a slave of the correct and right spiritual master, who is Christ. So that is our freedom, and that is what Jesus came to provide for us when he died for our sins on the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for the many. Second Corinthians, flip there, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. It's right after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I thought that was funny. None of you all laughed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. Just, just checking to making sure you're still here. Chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. The Apostle Paul says this. For we are convinced. We have concluded this, that one has died for all. And therefore all have died. And he died for all. Why did Jesus die? Watch this. He died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sakes died and was raised again. Do you see that? Jesus died for us so that we would live for him. That is what he's seeking. How should it shape our lives, the fact that Jesus died on the cross as a ransom payment to set sinners free? It should lead us to give him our lives. We should yield to Jesus the balance of our days and say, here is my life. Take it and do with it as you will. It is the only correct way to respond to what Jesus did. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, the Bible will reinforce this for us. And, and, it, and, and the Apostle Paul says there, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? that you have received from God. And he says, for you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. Do you see that? Jesus set you free with this ransom payment, but in the process, he also purchased you for himself. You, if you are a Christian, listen, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, and the price was the very life of Jesus Christ. He paid with his life to secure your freedom and your allegiance and obedience to him from this point on. Back in Matthew chapter 20 now, verse 28, there is one question that looms large for all of us this morning. Are you among the many 
that Christ has set free. For he came to give his life as a ransom for the, for the many. Now listen, I'm not asking you for your opinion right now about the doctrine of election. That's not what I'm doing. Listen closely. I am asking you a very personal question. Are you, as you observe your life at this point, are you among the many who have been set free from slavery to sin by the ransom that Christ put down on the cross? Do you see evidence in your life that you are among that many? Go back to Romans chapter six. We're beginning to close. As you know, it's different from actually closing, but we are beginning to close. Romans chapter six, this time in verse six and seven. How can we know that we are no longer enslaved to sin, but in fact are among the many whom Christ has already set free? Romans chapter six, verse six. We know, everybody say we know. All right, just check it. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. There are people, even in this room, who can say, we know. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ. We know that we have died with Christ. And therefore, we are no longer enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, yes, we still commit sin here and there. Yes, there may be particular areas of your life where you even believe that sin is regularly getting the upper hand. And, and, and more than likely that's because you're, you're not really focused on the, the 80 or 90% of your life where Christ is actually working victory in your, in your heart over that. But you're so focused on the 10% that it at least seems like, man, this thing beats me up every day, all day. But there are people among us who can say, I know that I have been crucified with Christ. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that you have been crucified with Christ? That as he literally goes through crucifixion on the cross, that by the Spirit, you have been spiritually joined to Jesus in that event by which he ransoms your soul out of slavery to sin. Well, you can. You can have confidence if you know that upon hearing this very message, upon hearing about what Jesus has done for sinners, if your heart has connected the dots and has said, I needed him to do that for me. And if you have responded upon hearing the good news of what Jesus has done for his people, if you have responded by saying, I am a slave to sin, I need to be set free, only Jesus can do that. 
only the cross is sufficient. God raised him from the dead. God showed that in Jesus there is power to raise my dead soul. If that has happened to you, that is a miracle. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Jesus said to Peter, you know who I am? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has shown you. Heaven has visited your heart in a special way if you have concluded that when Christ died upon the cross, he died for you. And he set your soul free at that very moment. Now live in that freedom. You want to honor Jesus? Like it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you've been bought with a price, therefore honor God, glorify him in your body. You want to honor him? Then live in that freedom. Jesus said yes to the cross so that you and I could say no to the thing that once enslaved us. Live in that freedom and thank him for it every day. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I will close with this. John Newton, who once ran a slave ship, had his heart radically transformed by the gospel. And he became a follower of Christ, recognizing that he himself was more bound in slavery to sin than the people he was carrying across the Atlantic. And yes, he wrote the song Amazing Grace, and you know that, but he wrote another song where he talks about the ransom that Jesus puts on the cross. And he said, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget the look which seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. For I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look, he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Christian, live through Jesus Christ. Lord, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that you came to show us what it means not simply to be served by everyone around us, but to serve. I pray that you will show us some practical way we can do that this week in our homes and even in a gathering like this. And I pray more than anything that our hearts would truly grasp the fact that you gave your life as a ransom to set us free from sin and that the very same power that raised you from the dead is now at work in us to help us live in that freedom and to carry the message of that freedom to those who are still bound in slavery to sin. Would you help us to carry that message of the gospel humbly to those you have placed in our life who need to hear and enjoy, who need to hear about this freedom? We ask this in your name, Jesus, and everybody said, amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.